turn in God's holy word to the letter of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, I'll be reading verses 3 through 13. Our focus today will be on verses 10 through 12. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, forgive us. that our hearts are too often set on things that are passing and fading. That we set our minds, our affections on these things. And Father, graciously rebuke us now and call our attention by Your Spirit to Your Word, where You speak of all that is ours in Christ. And may we set our hope on those things. And may that cause us to live as pilgrims and exiles in this world, distinct and holy for Your name, for the name of Christ. In that name we pray. Amen. So this is the third and final course of an elephant that we've sought to eat chunk by chunk. Verses 3 through 14 form one large elephantine sentence in the original language. And we've been digesting it slowly. And now we come to the final course. Verses 
Three through five are the chuck and rib sections of this elephant, if you will, in which we looked at this living hope that we were born again into. This living hope, verse three, or verse four, our inheritance, or verse five, the salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Those those different phrases are all largely synonymous, referring to the same thing. And then we came to the loin section, verses 6 through 9, where Peter says that we rejoice in this living hope despite various trials, knowing that those trials are not only incapable of scathing our hope, but contrary they actually work to increase our wealth and abundance that we have in Christ. And now we come to this final portion, the round portion of the elephant, in which Peter speaks of the revelation of this salvation. Verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets, which prophets? The prophets who prophesied. So naturally we we understand that these are the prophets of the Old Testament. Now remember that this letter is glutted with Old Testament language. Peter lavishly heaps on Old Testament language of the covenant on these New Testament believers. Peter, a Jew, lavishly heaps this covenant language on believing Gentiles. He refers to them as elect exiles of the dispersion. He speaks of theirs being the inheritance. The Old Testament prophets, we read, spoke about the grace that was to be yours. This grace is the salvation. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace. So salvation here is our full, our complete our ultimate, our final, our future salvation. And now it's referred to as the grace. This salvation is the same as is being spoken of in verse 9. Obtaining the outcome, the end, the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls, the salvation of your persons. It's the same salvation mentioned in verse 5 as the salvation that's ready to be revealed at the last time. So this salvation that we're speaking of here, is our living hope. This salvation is that inheritance that's being kept for us and we for it. This salvation is that salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. This becomes all the more clear when you look ahead to verse 13. Therefore, being sober-minded, therefore, excuse me, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded... Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that phrase takes you back to verse 7, where you saw the hope and the glory and the praise that are to be bestowed at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so, I want you to see though, Peter is simply adding another layer to this really thick, sweet, and rich cake. Living hope, inheritance, salvation ready to be revealed, this salvation, the grace, these are all largely synonymous. Peter hasn't changed the subject. These aren't different cakes. Same one, multiple layers heaped up now. 
He hasn't changed the subject in this big sentence. You can get lost in it with all these different terms, but you need to see that Peter's speaking of the same thing. So, with that, let's be clear. Who are the, who, who are the prophets that Peter's wanting to identify? The prophets who prophesied about the grace that's to be yours. What about them? They searched, they inquired their own prophecies, verse 10. This isn't to say that they went into some kind of trance, came out of it, and there's a book or a letter in front of them, and then they, what, what's this? What did I write? And they begin to research it and see what they wrote. They knew a great deal concerning what they wrote. But what is, what's at, at root here is made clear in the, in the description of the Spirit that follows that the Spirit of Christ was prophesying. As they wrote, the Spirit of Christ was at work. In the next letter, Peter will write, <clears throat> No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So here's this, this, this work that a prophet has produced. And though they understood, though it has the markings of their personality and their traits on it, it was a work of the Spirit. It, it was, the end product is the Spirit's word. And they would search and inquire, understanding much of what they wrote, but, but there was someone speaking in these words concerning a mystery and truths that they didn't fully understand. Jeremiah knew that Babylon would destroy Jerusalem. Jeremiah knew that there was this hope of a new covenant. There was much he understood, but there was much that was left veiled, concealed. They wanted to know, verse 11, about a person. They wanted to know about a time. They wanted to know who and when. They knew that a salvation was to come. They were waiting for the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One, the prophet, priest, and king of God. And do you notice what's happened here? Concerning this salvation, concerning this salvation, the prophet spoke of the grace, and now Peter has transitioned to a person. He's speaking of Christ. The prophets spoke of Christ. This salvation, this grace is found and bound in a person. To receive the grace of God means nothing more than to receive Christ as a gift. I'm not talking about you receiving some kind of act you do. I'm talking about Christ bestow, uh, God bestowing Christ on you as a gift. When you've done, whenever you've received Christ from God the Father, you've received grace full and unmeasured. See, we're born again to this living hope, to this inheritance, to the salvation, to this grace. We're born again to it by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's all found in Christ, verse 3. So can you see why Peter refers to the Spirit here as the Spirit of Christ? The Spirit makes much of, magnifies, reveals, speaks of, ministers Christ. The Spirit moves these men to write the Scriptures which testify of Christ. You remember Jesus, as he, after He had risen, appears to two of His disciples on the road. And these disciples are downcast. 
because the one that they had hoped to redeem Israel was crucified. And Jesus graciously rebukes them saying, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? And Luke goes on to tell us that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. The Spirit is the witness of Christ. The Scriptures are His recorded testimony. And through them, He still speaks of Christ. Not through them, He's spoken of Christ. Through them, He speaks. The living and active voice of the Holy Spirit testifying to Christ comes through the Word of God. Jesus told His disciples, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about Me. John 15, 26. The Spirit was doing this testifying of Christ in the Old Testament. It wasn't that He became the Spirit of Christ after the Incarnation. Then He's talking about Jesus. The Spirit's work in inspiring all the Scriptures, both Testaments, was to witness to Christ. The Holy Spirit is sent by Christ as a helper to minister Christ and bear witness about Christ. There's much emphasis today on the Spirit in many churches, charismatic churches, But where the Spirit is so emphasized that there's no emphasis on Jesus, it's not the Holy Spirit that's at work. There are spirits, no doubt, at work in such an environment. There isn't anything holy about them. Indeed, the Spirit of Christ is grieved at such sin. Then Phillips writes, Show me a person obsessed with the Holy Spirit and His gifts. Real or imagined, and I will show you a person not filled with the Holy Spirit. Show me a person focused on the person and work of Christ, never tiring of learning about Him, thinking about Him, boasting of Him, speaking about and for and to Him, thrilled and entranced with His perfections and beauty, finding ways to serve and exalt Him, tirelessly exploring ways to spend and be spent for Him, growing in character to be more and more like Him, and I will show you a person who is filled with the Holy Spirit." The Spirit of Christ. J.I. Packer strings together a slew of similes, saying, We may multiply the illustrations. The Spirit, as we said, is the floodlight, or the searchlight, picking out and illuminating the Lord Jesus for us. Also, He is the contact lens that enables us to see Him clearly. Also, He is the matchmaker drawing us close to Christ for a permanent union. Also, He is the intercom, making communication between Christ and us a reality of our experience. Also, He is the spiritual pacemaker implanted to ensure heart-healthy functioning in love to Christ. And with all this, He is the channel through which Christ pours His life and power into us for worship, sanctity, and service. But in all that He does, He keeps Himself out of sight. 
When He works in us, Christ, not the Spirit, is the center of attention. Spiritual experiences that lead away from Christ or bypass Him are not from the Holy Spirit at all. You never see the Spirit drawing attention to Himself. Everywhere He works throughout the Scripture, He is so pleased to fade into the background and put forth Christ. The irony is, if you want to understand the Holy Spirit, study Christ. And you will see that the Holy Spirit loves and adores to put Christ forward and magnify Christ. The prophets searched and inquired their own spirit-expired prophecies concerning the person and the time of Christ. The Christ who that spirit predicted would suffer and then be glorified. The Spirit spoke of the sufferings of Christ in passages like Isaiah 53. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds we are healed. The Spirit spoke of His subsequent glories in passages like Daniel 7, where Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And as you read the letter of Peter, do you not see Peter speaking of the very same things, the sufferings and the subsequent glories of our Lord? His sufferings, 2, 21 and 24. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Or he speaks of his subsequent glories. Passages like 3.22. Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. So the prophets searched and inquired. Much remained hidden concerning who and when. Verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were serving serving not themselves but you. Now, don't misunderstand this language. Don't think that there was this message of Jesus that they were speaking of the Old Testament that they didn't have any part in. It was just for us who would come along later as dispensationalists would like to paint this passage so often. That there was this plan that God had for Israel and then there's this plan that God has for us. And so they searched into these things that that they wanted to know about, they were curious about, but it really didn't concern them. When Abraham looked forward to that heavenly city, 
he looked forward to what was our inheritance. Ours with him. That's part of this living hope and inheritance that we have. And it's all in Christ and it's nowhere else. When you read Hebrews 11 and you look at those saints spoken of there and their faith and their longing for all that was promised to them, you come to the conclusion of that chapter and and you read, All these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Here's a beautiful thought. All of us experience our salvation and our sanctification and all kinds of of the manifold blessings that we have in Christ. We experience them at different times and in different ways in our pilgrimage. There are brothers in Christ that you've never met from ages and ages past who are at the right hand of God the Father in Christ now. But know this. That the full and complete salvation that will come, will come at the revelation of Christ and we will all share it together. And every bit of it comes in the Christ who is revealed. Verse 12 isn't telling us that they had no part in Christ. It's just telling us that you're able to see what they couldn't see Because of Christ's coming and His sufferings and His resurrection. They didn't understand everything. There was this mystery that was being revealed and now you've come to the point in history where God has spoken through His Son. You are privileged to greater light and understanding through the very same Scriptures. Now, these prophets served them, Peter says, these these Jew and Gentile believers of of his time, the, the prophets of the Old Testament serve them, they serve us. How do they serve us? They serve them, they serve us, verse 12, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. There's a symmetry here, do you see it? We have the Spirit inspired prophets of the Old Testament, speaking of Christ. And now you have these Spirit-empowered preachers. And I think as you reflect on this, it's clear that this isn't speaking to preachers in general. There is a correlation there. It's speaking of the apostles and their ministry to make clear Christ in all of Scriptures as the official, authorized interpreters of the Old Testament. The apostles come along and they say, this is what the Old Testament is about. Christ. The apostles were entrusted with the mystery of the gospel as the foundation of the church in proclaiming and heralding Christ. In Ephesians 3, Paul says, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. 
All the promises. The Gentiles are fellow heirs that's now been revealed and come to light in Christ. They're fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. All these promises, Old and New Testament, all of them, ours in Christ. All of us, Jew and Gentile, all ours in Christ. So the prophets serve us in the apostolic preaching of the Christ. Read the New Testament. What do the apostles draw on again and again to set forward Christ? What do the apostles draw on to explain and make Christ clear? What do they draw on to show the wealth of blessedness that we have in Christ? Again and again, it's the Old Testament. Whenever Peter preaches on Pentecost, read the sermon afresh. What's his passage? What's his text? It's the Old Testament. The Old Testament is for you. It's for you as you are in Christ because it is all of Christ. If you have the Christ of the Old Testament, you have the Old Testament as well because it's all Christ. Isaiah serves you. Moses serves you. Be astounded at this. Ezekiel serves you in a way more than he was able to serve the very people of his own time. He serves you in a way that's beyond then, beyond what he could do then. Now, there are historical peculiarities. There are, there are cultural factors involved that are mysterious and and we will be blind to you and no scholar can ever unearth. But the central message of the prophets has not been obscured by the fading of time. The central message of the prophets has become more clear. We have the privilege to gaze at brighter splendor, illuminated by the risen sun. In their words, the prophets served you. Don't. Don't fail to appreciate what God has done for you, how He's served you through their service. These things that they longed and inquired of, that the apostles come along and proclaim, these things angels longed to look into them. Of the mystery that was opened to the apostles, Paul goes on in Ephesians 3 to say, To me, though in the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's our inheritance. That's our living hope. That's our salvation ready to be revealed. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Read angelic host among others. That it might be made known to the glory of God our Father. 
The glory that you're privy to see in the Old and New Testaments where the Spirit testifies of Christ and through which He testifies still, that glory is a glory that the angels have longed to look into and that they stand and marvel at as it's unfolded. As God has brought you into that mystery and you're, you're part of the stage upon which He unfolds that glory for them to behold. Now, why does Peter tell us this? Why does he end this gargantuan sentence with this? He praises God who's caused him to be born again to this living hope, to this inheritance, to this salvation ready to be revealed, to this grace. And he, re he, he rejoices. He calls for them to rejoice. He just says that they do it. They rejoice even though they're grieved by various trials because those trials do absolutely nothing to that inheritance. But contrary by the providence and preserving power of God as He works in His people, those trials actually work to increase their wealth in Christ. But then He ends it all by saying that that salvation was revealed by the prophets for us through the apostolic preaching of Christ. Why end in that way? First, I think you get a hint if you'll reflect on that phrase, the, the, the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. I think the word that should stand out is subsequent glories. He wants to emphasize that the Spirit spoke in the prophets of Christ's sufferings. And yes, there's something in the Scriptures that speak of the glory that the Son had with the Father for all eternity. But He wants to stress, I'm not talking about those glories. I'm talking about the glories that came after and subsequent to and as a result of His sufferings. That's the very order of the Christian life. Think of that little part of, of that sentence, speaking of Christ, and how it relates to the whole of this letter, because that's the very pattern of the Christian life that Peter puts forward in this book. Suffering, and then glories, subsequently. And now here he's speaking of Christ and His sufferings and glory, and throughout this book, Peter will again and again put forward Christ as an example for us of the pilgrim journeying, journeying home. Suffering here and now, and glories to await. So 2.21 To this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. 3.17 and 18 it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. For one, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. For 12 and 13, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you 
as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. The cross did many things, and we must never so emphasize one aspect of the cross that we neglect others. We rightly hold that the central aspect of the cross was penal substitutionary atonement. That Jesus on the cross was acting as a substitute, a representative, the second Adam in our place to pay the penalty for our sins and thus make atonement, reconciliation between man and God. That's central. But do you notice that Peter, he sets forward the atonement in those very terms, and yet he doesn't hesitate to also speak of Christ in that act as setting forth an example for us. Not in that we can ever atone for sin by our suffering. Not that we can ever suffer in in such a way that it deals with sin. That is foreign to the scripture and heresy. but that we are to, as our Lord did, suffer righteously. Suffer for righteousness' sake. Two aspects of the cross that are often neglected are Christus Victor, Christ our victor, defeating our enemies, and Christus Exemplar, Christ our example. But with Peter, I hope you see how Whenever these are held rightly, you're not emphasizing just one aspect because there are people that only want to look at the cross as an example of love and call for us to love as Christ did. There are people who only emphasize one of those other aspects. But you see how, as Peter's done with these passages, he draws out Christ being our example from the very depth of Christ dying for our sins and making atonement. The right way to speak of Christus Exemplar and Christus Victor and every other aspect of this beautiful diamond that has so many facades of the the life and death and resurrection of our Lord, the way to properly look at every other aspect is to see it rooted in that central one. That it, whenever you emphasize Christ our example properly, It doesn't diminish His sin-bearing atonement. It magnifies it all the more. Christ's death is far more for us than an example. It is not less. Peter wants to arm you for suffering here and now by speaking of our hope that awaits us. And he does so by calling your attention to the Christ who first suffered and then was glorified. It's the same way that Paul strengthened the souls of the disciples in Acts 14. 
He strengthened the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And this, I hope, prepares you to see the explicit reason given in our text for why does Peter end the sentence speaking of the revelation of our salvation that came through the prophets and the apostolic preaching of Christ. Why does he end the sentence in this way? Look at verse 13. Therefore, because of this, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He wants you to be ready to live in this world as an exile and a pilgrim, as a stranger, as an alien, everything that that means. And what you'll see in the weeks ahead is what that means is you live as one who's not tied to this fading world. You live as one alien to this age. It means a kind of ethical, moral, spiritual tone to your life that's completely different from anything else that you see around you. Being prepared means I want you to live righteously unto God. And he says he wants them to be prepared for this kind of living. And that means setting their hope on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Endure your pilgrimage here by setting your hope on home ahead. How are you to set your hope? On this, what does God use to strengthen your faith, your confidence, your assurance of this hope so that you can live as this kind of alien and stranger in this life? What does He use? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ, Romans 10 17. Why does He end the sentence in this way? He wants you to set your hope on this. Where can you go so that you know what this hope is, so that you can set your hope in this hope? Where can you go? The very place that the prophets went and inquired and searched. You go to the place where the angels longed to see into. You go to the Scriptures that speak of Christ and all that is ours in Him. You go to the Scriptures that speak of the Christ in whom we were born again to this hope. This inheritance, this salvation, this grace. You go to the Scriptures that speak of the Christ, the Christ who the Holy Spirit puts you into union with, and in that Son, you are adopted as sons, and you are thus heirs with Christ. It's the Scriptures that speak of all of that. The prophets. You see what he's trying to do here? He's trying to... He's trying to whet your appetite to go to the Word and look for Christ and all that is yours in Him. That's whenever your hope is set fully on, that, on these things. He says the prophets searched and inquired. Angels long to look into these things. Saints, don't neglect what you have in the Word of Christ. Set your hope on these things. This glorious salvation spoken of in this spirit-expired 
word. Let's pray. Father, may Christ be so attractive to us now. May the things of this world grow dim. Such that our hope being set on these things, rejoicing in Christ, we go forward living strangely, peculiarly. And may we go forward being ready to give a reason for the hope that is in us. In Jesus' name, amen.